This episode of Navara FM was made possible by your donations, just like everything else we do at Navara Media. If you can, please consider donating one hour's wage per month, or whatever you can afford, and help us build people-powered media. Just go to navara.media forward slash support to set up a regular donation of any size. We couldn't do it without you. So thank you. We're facing a mental health crisis. We hear this all the time. But it sometimes seems like the left has run out of ways to talk about it. As an editor, I certainly find it difficult to commission on the subject. We often take things at face value and approach the topic in simplistic ways. We might support liberal attempts at awareness raising that put the onus on individuals to destigmatize some more palatable mental illnesses but exclude others and ignore the fact that for many, help isn't available just through asking for it. Or we acknowledge that services are underfunded. The wait is too long for diagnosis or treatment. But in a starved neoliberal context, where it feels our focus must be on opposing the dismantling of the NHS, we're too scared to interrogate the services themselves and acknowledge that we're calling for increased spending on what many see as a carceral system, closely linked to police and prisons. We lean heavily on diagnoses that can be a lifeline in helping us to navigate a deeply ableist world without reflecting on what it means to speak of something we are or we have rather than something that is done to us. At best, we know how capitalism is making us sick, but we rarely interrogate what mental health and madness actually are in order to imagine a world where things are radically different. But Misha Fraser Carroll's new book, Mad World, does just that. How do we take the often alienating and debilitating experiences of madness, she asks, and turn them outwards to politicise them? Misha is a journalist and writer who's worked for Galdem and The Independent. I'm Charlotte England from the Navara Articles team. Most of my work is behind the scenes, but for this episode of Navara FM, I wanted to speak to Misha because her book resonated so much with me at a time when I was struggling with how to understand and navigate my own mental health. We talked about the burgeoning moral panic around self-diagnosis, the pitfalls of calling mental illness a social construct, and whether after capitalism, anybody will still be mad. Hey, Misha. Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to Navarra FM. So to begin, could you just tell me how and why you came to write Mad World? Yes, definitely. So Mad World um, aims to take a radical political approach to mental health. And I think I decided that I wanted to write this book probably around 2019. I think it was just before the pandemic. And at that time, I really felt like we were kind of just coming down from the peak of kind of this age of mental health awareness. And, you know, all of these discussions, which were often very liberal, very individualistic, very focused on, you know, we all just need to speak up, break the stigma, reach out, this kind of thing. And I felt that in the mainstream publishing space as well, a lot of the stuff that was getting published about mental health was very kind of memoir, individual story focused. And while I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing in itself, I was quite interested in kind of zooming out of mental health, um, you know, not only through a kind of narrow individual lens, but looking at uh, systems of power um, and taking a kind of structural analysis to like on a large scale, how do forces like capitalism, racism, um, transphobia, homophobia, misogyny, how do all of these different social forces um, impact who experiences mental distress and kind of how they also get categorized and treated. Um, so yeah, it was kind of a response to that liberal climate um, that I think is still in many ways still a big part of the discourse. So I, I've definitely also noticed that there's not really that much writing on mental health at the moment that's both radical and current. Mm. It kind of feels like the anti-psychiatry movement all but died in the 1980s and there aren't really that many radical, bold experiments anymore. Mm-hmm. In this context, what did you draw on to write the book? Yeah, so I draw on quite a few different kind of counter-hegemonic movements. You mentioned the anti-psychiatry movement, which for anyone who doesn't know about it was a movement that kind of emerged in the 1960s. And while 
anti-psychiatry, um, they were often actually psychiatrists, ironically, who were involved in this movement. While anti-psychiatry activists, um, they had a very broad range of political kind of commitments. You've got liberals on the one hand, you've got leftists and communists on the other hand. Um, what kind of united them was a challenge to the very basis of psychiatry, which meant, you know, questioning forces like institutionalization, because, you know, in the 1960s, we still had these giant kind of mental hospitals all across the UK, um, but also challenging, you know, things like how do we decide who gets categorized as mad or mentally ill and who gets categorized as sane and healthy? How do forces, like I'm mentioning forces like racism and things, how do they interact with who um, gets sorted into each category? So that was one current that felt really important. Another one is what's called the psychiatric survivor movement, which emerged kind of in the following decades and was mainly made up of people who had been hospital patients and people who had been psychiatrized. And many of these movements took a similar kind of anti-carceral um, approach. You know, they were advocates of deinstitutionalization a lot of the time, kind of advocated against things like forced treatment and things like this, and also often claimed, you know, the label of mad as kind of a resistance um, to the way that they were um, treated by the psychiatric system. So I think that was important too. And then another thread that is very central to the book is disability justice. The disability justice movement, for anyone who doesn't know about it, um, as a framework, it kind of emerged um, in North America and it tries to take a kind of radical and intersectional approach to disability. And I think that a lot of conversations I was seeing happening around mental health when I started writing, they kind of shied away from or didn't engage with the ideas of the disability justice movement. So I was interested in uniting those two. And then probably a final thing that I'm bringing in is like Marxism and taking a kind of materialist approach to how we think about mental health. And of course, also looking at how capitalism, capitalist work impacts our mental health so much. Um, so you mention liberal campaigns to raise awareness around mental health and, and that a lot of writing and thought on the subject of mental health in the mainstream has focused on that or has been more memoir. What's wrong with that? So I think what's wrong with it is not um, the existence of, say, memoirs or us talking about our experiences in themselves. I think what's wrong with it is the broader trend, you know, the broader fact that it seems that we're ready for a conversation about people's individual experiences, um, but we can't quite yet have a conversation about the broader structures that are producing distress en masse. And I think this really ties into kind of neoliberal individualism, right? You know, we see healing narratives, the dominance of these narratives that are usually white, able-bodied, middle-class, university-educated, etc. people who, you know, they will talk about their experiences of crisis maybe, and then, you know, it comes to this nice, neat conclusion that's now I'm recovered. And kind of also people are often only allowed to speak after they've been, after they're recovered. Um, and I think that it buys into this idea that it's kind of each of our individual responsibility to heal, to go on this journey of treatment, recovery. Um, and also that that definition of healing is almost always about kind of realigning with the demands um, of the market, with the demands of individual citizens. And so I think that, yeah, I, I don't think it's straightforwardly a bad thing when we talk about our own experiences, but I think that we need to be endeavoring to connect these up and actually say, what are the common threads, you know? What are the things that are causing all of us to suffer? One of your starting points is that you name capitalism as a significant producer of suffering in contemporary life, under whose conditions life is not only unfulfilling for many, but also unlivable. Could you talk a bit more about capitalism as a cause of mental distress? And can you relate that to your own life a bit? Definitely. Um, yeah, like you say, I kind of isolate it as I think a key driver of mass distress in contemporary life. Um, I have a whole chapter that looks at capitalist work specifically and the ways that, you know, working um, in a way that you don't own the things that you produce, you do not have kind of autonomy over your working conditions. Um, you're constantly uh, kind of uh, tied to the profit motive in terms of how you produce um, and how you work. I see that as something that is extremely detrimental to our mental health. You know, we live in a society where the bargain is kind of 
work or die. And we don't always name that explicitly, right? But, you know, I look a lot also at, for example, the benefit system and how for many people, if they fall into unemployment and into that system, that can be a death sentence or can lead to a life that is not very livable. But I also look at things like, for example, under capitalism, the way that we're pushed to be in competition with, you know, our co-workers who should be our comrades. We are constantly fighting, again, under this system where we're always scared of falling out of labor into unemployment. And I think that fractures solidarity, it fractures community. I look at For example, things like the Whitehall studies, which was like a study that was done on civil servants. And I think it's still ongoing. And that looks at, for example, if you look kind of down the ladder in um, certain professions, it's the people at the bottom of the ladder who have the least autonomy over their working conditions that actually experience the most distress. And actually not only mental health problems, but also, you know, things like heart disease, diabetes, like experiences that we might not always like directly correlate with mental health and distress. Um, But, you know, I also look at things like neoliberalism, you know, austerity, the impact of poverty on our mental health, I think can't be overstated. We often see statistics that say things like people who are houseless are X percent more likely to have, you know, Y mental health problem. And while that's one way of looking at it, I think we also have to say, well, I mean, if you're houseless, it's very hard not to be anxious about, you know, where are you going to sleep tonight? Where are you going to get your next meal? And things like this. And so I think, yeah, again, kind of adopting this Marxist perspective, I think that capitalism is such a big driver of distress. And I think, you know, as I mentioned in the introduction, I think there are so many ways that it impacts us on kind of a psychic level that we might not even necessarily name or think about, you know, the way that we often see ourselves as um, very atomized, very separate Mm -hmm. to one another. Yeah, and then the second thing on kind of how it um, is a part of my own life, I grapple in the introduction of the book with um, alienation. And, you know, again, this idea that under this economic system, so many of us are kind of um, fundamentally split from our, our actual desires, you know, our autonomy. And I kind of put alienation in conversation with an experience that I had of madness or mental illness. And my experience was of dissociation. And I had a kind of dissociative experience, which is often called depersonalization, which is when you kind of don't feel real. Like people associate it, you know, describe it as feeling very out of body or like kind of everything you're looking at feels like it's on a TV screen or like very distanced. And, you know, I used to experience stuff like looking in the mirror and like not recognizing myself or feeling like it was me. And in a slightly kind of poetic way, like I do see that kind of as interacting with capitalist alienation. Um, There's a writer, Lisa Fannin, who says that kind of capitalism itself is a dissociative state. You know, when you're in school, so often you're told that you have to sit still and you can't look outside or daydream or go to the toilet. Um, And I think that that's like similar to our working conditions, right? Like so many of us have to suppress what we fundamentally desire. Um, And I do see that as like a kind of a type of dissociation. Mm. Um, And I think that yeah, the pressures that I was facing to kind of be a certain kind of person or perform as a certain kind of worker as well. I think that that was tied to my experience of dissociation. And in many ways, it was kind of a result of that trauma, I think. So for me, while the idea of capitalism as a producer of suffering is obviously like foundational to the book, the more interesting part was when you move beyond that to take what you describe as a constructivist approach to mental health. Mm -hmm. So looking more at what actually is it. Diagnosis is obviously central to this and it's having a bit of a moment right now. So in the mainstream Mm -hmm. media, the scandal of of long wait lists seems to have given way recently to a burgeoning moral panic about self-diagnosis or inaccurate private diagnosis. Tapping into this discourse, you wrote a piece for Navara that we titled Mental Health Diagnoses are Capitalist Constructs. This upset quite a lot of readers who misconstrued our title as suggesting that mental health conditions are in and of themselves not real. Could you unpack what you actually mean when you speak of diagnosis as a system of power which is closely linked to capitalism and the state? Definitely. So as you know, I um, 
yeah, I had a difficulty with this title as well. Um, partly just because condensing things down into a title um, inherently kind of destroys nuance. Like it's just something that yeah. we face in journalism, right? Um, but secondly, because I felt that in some ways it it might put forward an idea that felt reductive. But then I also, the third thing, which I emphasized to you, you know, when we had a bit of back and forth about the title, is the fact that I think... Um, for so many people, the word constructed, when we start to talk about social constructs, um, kind of ha carries this implication that something's not real. And I tried to take this on really, really early in the book, you know, something, I say that something being constructed does not mean that it's not real. Um, many things that are constructed are very real. And, you know, you can look at the example of race, for example, like I know as a black person um, that race is constructed, but my experience as a racialized person in the world is very material. It's very tangible. And I also think that sometimes when we talk about things being constructed, people can think that it kind of means, um, oh, there's no biological basis or like biology is nothing to do with it. And I tried to push against that as well in the book. You know, I, I tried to say with mental health, there's just a lot that we actually don't know, you know? There are no blood tests, no brain scans. We've got no, what they call in psychiatry, biomarkers um, to measure uh, what it is. And I kind of, yeah, I think it's important to reiterate that something could be constructed around biology, you know, um, in the same way that we talk about, for example, biological sex as a construct. So, yeah, and I think that also, you know, I, I really do understand some of the upset from especially I think people who just kind of saw the title as well I think that in the sphere of mental health there is I think the current discourse that we have is often so dismissive of people's um, very real suffering and very real problems right like most of us who have experienced mental distress have had people say you know, like you can just snap out of it or like, oh, aren't you just being a bit down in the dumps or whatever it is. I think we're very used to um, living in a climate where people don't see our suffering as real. And I think that discussion of social construction for that reason, I think is really sensitive. And the ways that we do it, I think have to come with a lot of nuance um, and really hold the fact that um, something can be constructed and, and be very real and the suffering can be real. Um, and so I guess I'll speak a bit more to kind of my approach to also what I mean when like I'm saying that it's constructed. Early on in the book, I look at kind of the emergence of our current approach to mental health um, through the lens of what were once called lunatic asylums, um, which were all across Britain. Um, and I kind of argue that when you see the emergence of capitalism, and you see people being pushed into the factory um, and money being stripped from people, you know, families who used to um, have funding to look after their family members um, who were at the time called mad. Um, you see when the industrial revolution and capitalism emerges, mass, mass kind of commitment of people to the asylum system. Um, and as the system grows, you see more and more kind of taxonomization of like, how do we describe what's the label that we give to this person? What's the reason why they were admitted? Um, and because people who went to asylums were people who couldn't go into factories, they couldn't work on the production line, um, lots of these reasons were essentially uh, using the metric of their ability to work, the metric of their ability to be exploited. And I bring that like all the way to the present day as well and say, you know, so many things that we categorize um, as illness versus health are really, really shaped by the question of, can you go to work <laughs> and be exploited under neoliberal capitalism? You know, I look at, for example, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is kind of the famous manual that is used to kind of diagnose what they call mental disorder. And the word work is mentioned in this manual almost 300 times. And, you know, you see this with, when you go to get a diagnosis like depression, for example, you know, one of the big questions is, does it interfere with your ability to go to work or to go to school or to go about your daily life? So when I describe um, diagnoses as being constructed under capitalism, this is what I'm getting at. The idea that actually the economic system we have um, plays such a big role in who we think of um, as normal, or abnormal, um, healthy or ill. And that's also not to say that like, you know, if we overthrew capitalism tomorrow, 
all of these categories would change or that people wouldn't still suffer. You know, that's not the implication. But I do think it's important to think about how significant capitalism is in that process of categorization and the fact that maybe in a different world, the way that we categorize things would look a bit different. So with that said, this informs the way that I think about, you know, diagnosis, self-diagnosis. And like you say, I talk about diagnosis as in many ways a system of power. And I think we don't usually think of it this way, right? We kind of think diagnosis is like, diagnosis is the illness. It's this objective thing um, that is internally true about us. When actually I argue, well, diagnosis is a framework, right? It's a framework for understanding or naming different bodily experiences and a framework for also saying, these are the different routes or treatments that you could take. Um, but to bring power more into the conversation, I, I think we have to acknowledge that so many of us have really little say in the diagnoses that we actually receive. You know, I know so many people who have had to really, really fight to, for example, get a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder to get it taken off of their records because this diagnosis is very stigmatized and very often it sees you have really kind of horrible experiences in the mental health system. But then on the other hand, you know, I think we're all more familiar also with these stories of people having to fight really hard to get a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we see it with autism and ADHD, right? Like so many women, for example, saying professionals, you know, they don't see, they can't see my struggles um, or they have a very gendered way of approaching it and they don't, they won't validate what I'm experiencing. So I kind of try to argue in favor of self-diagnosis, which like you say, it's like quite a like controversial hot topic right now. Um, but I do see self-diagnosis as a process of kind of taking some of that power back. And I think when we talk about self-diagnosis, skeptics often kind of have this image of like people just like randomly Googling stuff and being like, that's me. Or like the kind of the TikTok thing that people talk about of people self-diagnosing themselves from really short snippets. But I actually do think that's a bit of a moral panic and I do think that the majority of self-diagnosis is like I've observed it in my communities is people doing really deep kind of internal work. And also, um, you know, looking online, the activist uh, Stephanie Kaufman Mutumkulu writes about this idea that when we say self-diagnosis, often we're talking about community diagnosis. You know, you talk to other people, you know, who have had similar experiences and you find some kind of understanding through that. Yeah. And so I think that self-diagnosis represents in some ways a bit of a liberating possibility. But I think it also has to coexist with people being able to reject diagnosis um, if it's not right for them as well. So I actually found the fallout to the Navarra piece stressful and in some ways quite upsetting because I completely understand where people are coming from. It's an immensely sensitive topic because for so many people, diagnosis can literally be a matter of survival. It opens up access to services. Some diagnoses can be immensely validating. It gives you a shorthand for explaining yourself to people and just an easier way to navigate the world. I've relied on a diagnosis to do all these things. But far from diminishing diagnosis as unimportant, your writing explicitly acknowledges how powerful it is, which is precisely why it's important to interrogate it. So you don't argue that we dismiss diagnosis. You acknowledge multiple current realities where it can be both helpful and harmful to people in different contexts. But you also suggest that we start to imagine an entirely different way of doing it. So what could a system of diagnosis look like that's liberatory rather than oppressive? Yeah, so this is one of the things that I think in the book is probably, I leave it very open because I think it's obviously a huge question. Like I'm not going to be able to solve like the medical industrial complex um, in an 182 page book. But I do try to kind of gesture towards more liberating approaches. So as I mentioned, self-diagnosis, I think is one of them. This idea that maybe we could reshape these categories or take knowledge from medicine and actually subvert it or kind of do something else with it in the community. I think that's one liberating possibility. I've been thinking a little bit actually about COVID and how what happened during COVID may represent also some other possibilities um, when it comes to diagnosis. For example, like the mass availability, at least at one point in the pandemic, of lateral flows, you know, being able to do PCRs, things like that. I think often we kind of think 
medicine and medical institutions have to have this monopoly on diagnosis because, you know, they have the knowledge, the research, the technologies, etc. Um, and while that's true in many ways, I think during COVID, you know, we saw a possibility where you can perform diagnosis at home on your own. You could do it for free. And I think that's to do with the availability of resource, which is not to say like, that's, you know, a blanket solution that would work with, for example, mental health. But I think it shows a little glimmer of, of a kind of experiment or possibility with having autonomy and power over diagnosis. And then I also discuss in the book uh, trans communities, um, and it comes up in a few different kind of um, parts of the book. I firstly kind of look at the fact that historically queer people have been um, categorized as mentally ill. Homosexuality was in the DSM as a mental illness uh, until I think the 1970s. But actually that legacy continues for trans people. In the UK, most trans people have to access a diagnosis of gender dysphoria um, to access gender affirming healthcare. They usually have to go via a psychiatrist. And so I think that when we look at, for example, how trans communities have often said, the diagnosis of gender dysphoria, you don't need that to be trans, you know? You can self-identify, you can actually create your own way of naming your experience, um, and that can be done in the community. I think that, again, that represents a little bit of a glimmer of how could we take a different approach, uh, for example, with mental health, to how we name ourselves um, and how we come together in clusters in the community outside of the medical or psychiatric industrial complexes. So another of my favourite chapters in the book also deals with this question of what is mental health, but in a different way. So in the chapter on disability, you write, when I first left my GP's office with a diagnosis of depression and anxiety, I would never have thought of myself as a disabled person. The notion would have seemed ludicrous or even offensive. I had an image of what disability was and I was not that. Could you speak a bit more about your journey to identifying as disabled? And more broadly, are mental health and madness disability? And if so, always or only sometimes? Mm. Yeah, I definitely went on a long journey with this. Um, as you say, yeah, when I first kind of was grappling with the fact that I was experiencing mental health problems, I just never would have, I, I don't think I would have even connected it to disability. But I remember being within the university structure at the time, my lecturers and things being like, right, well, you need to go to the Disability Resource Center and they'll help you with like getting extended deadlines and things like this. And again, I had that knee jerk reaction of like, no, like that's not me. Or like I would somehow be taking up space or resource that belonged to someone else. But I think to be honest, it was kind of organizing, you know, when I was at uni, um, I uh, in my fourth year became the welfare and rights officer for the university. And I worked really closely um, with the disabled students officer. And I think that that experience um, kind of brought me, again, more of a materialist and kind of tangible um, approach to how we think about mental health and actually how much is shared between people who experience madness or mental illness and other disabled people, like people with physical disabilities, for example. I remember thinking about this for myself as well, at uni being like, I can't get out of bed and get to my lectures. And although, you know, you might categorize that as more mental, emotional, um, rather than physical, I also had physically disabled peers who also couldn't get into the lecture theater, you know, because of inaccessibility. Um, and the solution that we needed, which was lectures online, was a common solution. Um, and so I think that when we take this approach, when we look at accessibility or, you know, the social model of disability, um, you can see that mental health is, you can bring it into this framework. Um, and that, you know, as I've described in terms of like capitalist work and things like this, um, for all intents and purposes, uh, many experiences of mental distress are disabling in our current world. But the question of kind of, you know, is it a disability? I try to kind of push against this binary, you know, does it count or doesn't it? Um, and, and, you know, I think we often take that in an individual way as well, where like, am I disabled or not? Can I use that language or not? Should I self-identify or not? And I tried to kind of argue that while I think that's an important journey for a lot of us to go on and an important thing to reflect on um, in terms of identity, to me, it's kind of not the most important thing. Um, I think the most important thing 
is thinking of disability as the historian Joan W. Scott um, describes it as a collective affinity, you know, something, a kind of vehicle or lens of analysis um, that can bring us together and help us organize um, and think about the world in a really radically political way. And I think that that's also really important when we consider that for so many people, like, calling themselves disabled, it actually might bring on more stigma or, you know, it might just not be safe for them or it might not uh, make sense in their cultural context. And actually, yeah, this thing of like, how do we label you? I think we need to go beyond and also acknowledge that disability justice, it, it benefits all of us, you know, it's good for all people. And so I think we should all be invested in it. It does sometimes seem like it's quite difficult to get the left to engage with disability politics. You you actually mention this in the book. So, so you say you were worried that readers are so uninterested in disability that they wouldn't even read this part. I can absolutely relate to this concern in my job where disability content often does quite poorly. So why is disability so often an afterthought for the left? Why is it so hard to get people interested? And why is this so limiting to us? Yeah, it's such a fear. Like I've had it as, you know, as someone who's written a lot about kind of race and, you know, I used to write about, about gender a lot as well, noticing that when I started to kind of move into the disability space, like you say, like doesn't really get the clicks. People don't seem as interested. And I, I kind of, I've, I've grappled with this a bit why I think that is. I think part of it is to do with medicalization and the way that we um, think about things that we perceive to be medical, you know, we often see them as very um, depoliticized or apolitical, um, very private, you know, so much of medicine takes place behind the closed doors of, you know, the GP's office. And I think that we kind of see it as something that's personal um, to like individuals and, and like their bodies, do you know what I mean? Not something that operates in the social world. Um, maybe in the way that, you know, I, I think not in the same way as, for example, race or gender, which I think we readily see as very social. Um, but I also think you see a similar version of that happening even um, within disabled communities. You know, when we think about disability or you might first consider that you have a disability or a disabled person, if you Google it, you're probably, it's probably going to come up with a charity. Do you know what I mean? Like uh, a charity that's specific to, for example, autism um, or epilepsy or something like this. And I think that this kind of fragmentation, um, the way that we look at disabilities as kind of these individual conditions rather than a shared kind of collective um, political experience, I think that that is a problem that, yeah, we see even in disabled communities. And I also, I think that this is a real problem for the left, because like I say, I think that disability is constructed in the shadow of capitalism. And I think we so often, you know, on the left, we see people talking about um, workers, you know, we need to organize together as workers, as working people. Um, you see that trickling into the Labour Party, hardworking families, things like this. And I think that actually we need to also consider the people who are disabled and ex excluded from work. Um, and as this group also constituting um, a group of people who are also oppressed under capitalism. Um, and so, yeah, in the book, I tried to make a bit of a rallying cry for us taking disability seriously as leftists um, and acknowledging that it's something that concerns all of us you know, we're all going to become disabled if we live long enough. Um, and so I think it is a collective concern um, and we do need to be organising around it. Um, so I'd like to speak a bit more about the psychiatric system now before moving on to talking about alternatives. So modern day abolitionism is most commonly understood as a movement to end policing and prisons. But you see abolitionism as relevant in a mental health context too. You argue that the psychiatric system is a carceral one closely adjacent to police and prisons. Could you explain this? And could you also talk a bit about uh, why an abolitionist approach to mental health care could be helpful in creating radical alternatives? Yeah, so I think that this is an idea that feels, um, to some people can feel quite surprising or counterintuitive. You know, I think in the uh, world that we live in, there are many systems that we have that um, say that they're systems that are there to care for us, um, but actually in many ways can serve the function of punishing and harming us. And by kind of looking at the history of asylums um, and tracing it to the present, you know, I make this argument, as I've been reiterating, that the psychiatric system 
originates from this approach of where do we put, you know, how do we separate out people who are not exploitable under this economic system? And historically, that approach was very much focused on warehousing people, just finding a physical space to put them. Um, but I think, you know, the current approach we see today is often about how do we quickly, um, uh, in a cost-effective way, um, treat people and get them back onto the production line. We see this in the NHS, the focus on, for example, medication and CBT. While these things can be really good for some people, they also are very cheap um, and they're seen as much faster than other approaches, for example, um, therapy. And so I also try to kind of unite and say, well, you know, if the asylum system is about separating out people who behave in ways that are destructive to capital, I argue that the prison system also serves the same function, right? The prison system is about who are the people who are being destructive to this economic system um, or in some other way upsetting kind of the societal order. And I think that you can see um, a lot of overlap in firstly who um, gets sorted into these systems. You know, lots of people who have been in the psychiatric system have also been criminalized in their lives. Um, but you can also see common practices, for example, you know, restraint, um, even, you know, so many deaths at the hands of the police, especially of racialized people, are people who were experiencing mental health crisis. Um, and so I argue that the boundaries between these institutions are actually quite blurry and quite porous. Um, and I think that when we look at something like abolition, I think it's really important that we don't only see abolition as like, it's a thing of like, just getting rid of X, Y, or Z institution. To me, abolition is a much broader, um, much more radical and much more demanding project that, you know, uh, to draw on um, Shanice McBean uh, and Avia uh, Day, you know, what they say in their book, um, Abolition Revolution, is that it's not just about getting rid of X institution, it's about transforming the societal conditions that even produced these institutions in the first place. And so that's the um, approach that I try to take to the mental health system. And I think that that's important to hold because for so many of us, you know, we're seeing um, austerity, we're seeing really long waiting lists, you know, a, a kind of common leftist line is that we need more funding for these um, systems. And so I think it's important to emphasize it's not about taking anything away from people. It's about creating a society where we have better, genuinely healing approaches, you know, where no one is shut in and no one is shut out. Um, systems where people can be honest without fear of being, you know, restrained um, or forcibly treated. Uh, systems that are genuinely um, kinder and center care. Um, and I think that that is a really bold kind of project um, and something that, like I said, requires something much bigger than just changing institutions. So when we talk about um, abolition in the context of mental health, you know, which to me basically means um, making decarceral approaches that are not coercive, um, I think that is really important to look at other possibilities as well. Um, and there have been lots of different experiments kind of across history and today, which I think give us, again, little glimpses of potential ways we could do things. Um, I think it's important to emphasize, like, I don't have all the answers. And I also don't think there will be one blanket kind of approach or answer that works for everyone. I think we're going to need millions of these little experiments and possibilities. But one that I focus on quite a lot is a town called Trieste, which is in the northeast of Italy. Um, and they closed all of their asylums and psychiatric hospitals um, in the 1970s and created a system um, which, you know, they call it a no locked doors approach, which basically means that no one is locked in, but also anyone can freely walk in um, and get mental health support whenever they want. There's no waiting list, you know, you don't have to go via a doctor. Um, and they find that this approach has drastically reduced the number of people who reach crisis point in the first place. And they say in arguments about sectioning and things like this, I think people often kind of, you know, they say, well, what other alternatives, you know, what do you do if someone's in really severe distress and they might harm themselves or someone else? But at Trieste, they take this approach that they call relentless negotiation, which I quite like because it holds complexity, you know, it holds the possibility that 
okay, if you can't restrain, if you can't detain, you have to try and find another alternative. You have to talk things through with someone and find another way. And, you know, another option I look at um, is there's a group in the US called the Fireweed Collective, and they came up with something that they call Mad Maps. And it's a type of support plan where basically they get everyone um, who's part of this collective to write down a plan that's like, if you ever reach a state where you feel like you can't make decisions for yourself, what would you want to happen? You know, like what medications would you be comfortable with? What services would you want people to take you to? Where do you need to be? Who makes you feel safe? And you write these things down in advance of a crisis, which I think, again, it complicates our idea of consent, right? We often think, oh, well, if you reach a certain point in your crisis, you can no longer consent. Um, but this approach, I think, represents, yeah, a more complicated way of thinking about consent that tries to honor autonomy. But I also, you know, look at depathological approaches as well. For example, you know, things like the Hearing Voices Network, which is a kind of movement that takes an approach to um, what's usually called psychosis. It tries to take an approach that doesn't necessarily um, label it or construct it as an illness and says, well, actually, you know, is there a way of not only trying to get rid of what's called a symptom, you know, hearing a voice, but actually can you maybe think about what is the voice saying? You know, lots of people become distressed by their voices because they're saying really disturbing things. Um, so they might ask questions like, can you engage in dialogue with your voice? Could you befriend your voice? Is there a way that you can work with it? Um, and I think that's really liberating for a lot of people who have bad experiences with antipsychotic medication. Um, but yeah, there are lots of kind of these different examples. And I think that, like I said, we're going to need all of these experiments and what works for one person um, might not work for another person. But that's kind of what these more liberating approaches are about, I think. I actually really enjoyed that part of the book. Um, you say you don't have all the answers, but I, I thought that it's surprisingly optimistic in a way, like you're you're tracking all of these examples and then using that to sort of start imagining a different future. Mm. What kind of things can we start doing now to expand on these experiments? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think organizing. I think, like I said, things like um, this of like creating support plans. Like I think this isn't only something that applies to people who might think of themselves as mad or mentally ill. I think it applies for everyone. We should all prepare for the possibility that we might experience a crisis and that our loved ones might experience a crisis and plan for how do we support them um, if that happens. Uh, I also think community care, like some of these things, I guess, you know, they feel even kind of abstracted from mental health specifically as an issue. You know, I think the things we often talk about on the left and in disability justice spaces, um, doing mutual aid. Um, so for example, I have friends who, if they're in a crisis, if they're depressed, we have a kind of no questions asked understanding that's like, I'll come and bring you your shopping, like, or I'll help you fold your laundry. Um, I think these types of mutual aid push against the kind of neoliberal individualism that we're living under um, and represent ways of kind of helping support one another before people even become unwell. And then other things, you know, I make the argument in the book that I think that mental health, you know, it's racial justice, it's disability justice. Um, you know, I think a feminist organizing as a, an issue of mental health, mental health means a free Palestine, you know, anti-imperialism. I think that all of the organizing that like we're seeing um, across the left, we can argue uh, is an issue of mental health. And I think that tackling these things. Again, we're tackling forces at the root that lead so many people um, to become distressed in the first place. So yeah, I think there's kind of like a two-pronged element to it. Um, I think some of it is about supporting one another through crisis, through distress, but another um, element of it is trying to create a world where people don't become so distressed or in crisis in the first place. In terms of mutual aid and community support and radical experiments in how we approach mental health. I find there's sometimes uh, a sense that it's irresponsible to get involved and to try, I don't know, try something new, try putting in place like an initiative to support people if you're not a professional. Mm. And I actually saw this in the debate around the article a bit. Like there, mm. there were so many comments that I completely understood, but there were others that were like, 
it's irresponsible to have any opinion really on this if you're not a psychiatrist. Mm. And I feel like that's actually a really limiting approach, both to like our thinking on mental health and to coming up with alternative ways of doing it. How would you respond to that? And what can we do to fight that tendency? Yeah, I've noticed this as well, right? You know, people often say, oh, mental health, that's just not, I don't know about the science. Like, that's not my area of expertise. It's irresponsible. And, you know, we see this, I've seen this in so many spaces. Um, You know, at university, they used to always say, just like, call the authorities, you know, call Mm. the police. Like, that's just, you know, you need to outsource, outsource if someone, um, you know, reaches a certain point of crisis. Um, And I think that it's worth considering a, that many people who, you know, are mad or mentally ill, many people do engage with some of these systems strategically to stay alive. People still need to get their meds. Some people say, I have no other place to go if I'm in a crisis. Like, I don't want to go to a psych ward, but I don't know what else I can do. And so I think we have to hold and acknowledge the reality of the conditions we're living under now and the fact that many people are not presented with other options. But I also think that we need to not shy away from leaning into and creating um, and supporting these other options. Uh, Because, you know, we often say, oh, but what if the person harms themselves and harms other people? And I think that this sometimes obscures also the question of, well, there are many ways that institutions also harm people. You know, many people come out of um, psychiatric detention more traumatized than they were when they went in. Um, and I think it's just important to hold when we think about risk, that that also is a risk that faces many people, particularly marginalized and racialized people. And also, you know, some of it is very common sense. I know that when I've been in crisis, um, I think, well, the people who know me best, you know, my partner, my best friend, my mom, like these are the people who they can say, what does Misha need? You know, like where does she need to be? Or especially when I'm like, I've been in situations where I've found it really hard to articulate how I'm feeling. Um, It's that community that is really important. And, you know, towards the end of the book, I talk about how um, social isolation is often um, named as one of the biggest risk factors um, for suicide. And I think that, you know, the remedy to that in many ways is tackling that isolation um, and community. It's kind of common sense, right? Like community, mm. um, it, it's not going to fix everything. Um, but I think it is one pathway towards healing and it does make us maybe feel better. You know, when we're in, when we're in a crisis, it makes us feel that little bit better. Mm. I feel like the, the reluctance to get involved as well perpetuates this individualization of mental health. It's sort of saying, this is above our pay grade, it's your problem, you need to deal with it as the person in mental distress with the help of a professional, which seems like just a really negative tendency. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I think that also, you know, institutionalization is important to think about how are the ways that the threat or risk of institutionalization, like how does that actually impact how honest we can be about being in crisis. You know, many people will say, well, I felt that I couldn't tell my therapist or my friend that I'm having thoughts of self-harm or suicide because I know that I run the risk of getting sectioned. Um, And that choice between the community being, you know, embedded in your community or being um, institutionalized, that's a very hard line, like it's very stark. Um, And I think that does lead a lot of people to actually just further internalize and not talk about, you know, their struggles. So it also seems like a contradiction exists between efforts to push back against the underfunding of mental health and abolitionist and anti-psychiatry thought that says to further fund carceral systems is sometimes actively harmful and far from radical. How do we reconcile this? How can we call out the harm that psychiatric services cause without playing into a right-wing desire to dismantle services entirely? Mm -hmm. It's such a conflict that I think we're seeing, especially now in how people are talking about funding and institutions, you know, is it expand and fund, which is like the kind of anti-austerity line, or is it um, dismantle? 
And I argue that it's both, you know, I think we cannot, um, we cannot only pump money and funding into uh, systems and institutions that in many ways, like I say, serve the function of punishment, of segregation, um, of further producing further harm and trauma and distress, which is exactly, exactly the thing we're trying to get away from. I think we cannot only pump funding into these institutions, we need to pump funding into radically transformed methods, infrastructures, um, means of community care. Uh, and I think that this question of, yeah, is it more funding or less funding? I think, especially, I think in this moment where we've seen so much um, austerity and underfunding, I, I think you're seeing it also in the prison abolitionist movement. This question of actually, I think now is an apt moment to think about what are the infrastructures that we actually want to see? Um, and is this a moment where we could create something completely new, completely different? And this is a really difficult question, but what should we be working towards? So what does mental health madness and distress look like in utopia? After capitalism, will people still be mad? Oh my God, huge question. <laughs> um, I think, so like I said, I, I don't really like this idea that like, oh, after capitalism, like no one will experience like mental illness or madness. Like, I think that that's not true. Um, the writer Waithera Sabatindira talks about this with reference to addiction. They say, well, yeah, if capitalism, you know, was overthrown tomorrow, I'm sure there will be far, far fewer addicts, but we're always going to have some stragglers. And I think that that's how I feel about mental health too, and consider myself maybe to be one of those potential stragglers. Um, and I think that it's important to hold this as well, because the idea that there would be no madness or mental illness after capitalism, to me, that is kind of feels aligned with the eugenicist kind of project, you know, the idea that disability is this unwelcome presence um, that should be eradicated kind of in a, in a utopia. Um, and so I think we kind of have to hold both things at the same time, hold the desire for a world where far fewer people suffer, but also hold that Suffering is also, you know, grief, heartbreak, like all of these forms of suffering, I think are always going to be a part of the world. Um, and I think that I hope we have a future where we can also sit with um, and kind of be patient with the existing of, uh, existence of suffering um, and try to support one another through it. And I also think we need to um, work towards a world where actually you know, if we look at movements like the Mad Pride movement, um, where some people who consider themselves mad and that's how they want to be. Um, and they say, you know, I like my voices or I like experiencing highs and lows. That's how that's part of me. Um, I think we need a world where there's space for that as well. So, yeah, it's a very different future to kind of uh, the present that we're living in now. Um, but that's that's what I'm hoping towards. That's a really nice note to end on. Thank you so much, Misha. Thank you. Support independent journalism and set up a regular donation to Navara Media from just £1 a month. Head to navara.media forward slash support or face the consequences.